This morning, the uh, first responsive reading started with these words. Let us pray for the breaking in of God's kingdom in our world today. And I think that was just an extraordinary way to start this day. And um, I think everything that's gone on today has really contributed to that. I I, I thank the worship team for what um, the way they ministered to us and... um, the responsive readings and the story uh, that we just heard um, from the girl who traveled in Africa, that was obviously a very powerful story that she heard, and and I thank her for sharing that with us. Also, I thought Eric Swanson's talk this afternoon was really great. My friend uh, Carrie Olson and I were talking about it this afternoon, just about how practical and helpful and insightful it was. I especially like the diagram of the three circles with um, the word serve in the middle, I think that kind of sums it all up, probably for all of us. And I think that was a a great uh, session to start with. Uh, As I thought about, I don't need this, right? As I thought about what to talk about this evening, um, I I couldn't really decide which angle to take. Should I approach it more from the personal, uh, individual journey uh, toward more global engagement? Should I uh, talk more about what it takes to lead a church in that direction? Or should I talk about what I've had the privilege of seeing on the field in in Latin America and Africa? And so I couldn't decide. So this afternoon, I just thought, I'm going to talk about all of those things. So I kind of cut and pasted this afternoon, except uh, not with my computer, unfortunately. Really cutting and pasting paper. So either... The Holy Spirit is going to show up, and there's just going to be this incredible flow of ideas tonight. Or it's just going to seem like the totally disorganized mess that it really is. So I prayed for the former. I'm fearing the latter. But um, just please bear with me. Um, John, thank you for your very kind uh, introduction. It really is a a pleasure to be here tonight. And... um, As I was thinking about coming here, I I was thinking that just this fall at Willow Creek, we celebrated the 33rd anniversary of the church. And as celebrations go, it was pretty understated, low-key, nothing fancy. But for me, it was probably the most profound celebration that, that I've ever experienced with Willow because... I believe that Willow is now um, moving closer to the dream that Bill and I had when we started the church than, than we've ever been. And um, let me explain what that dream was, and then maybe you'll understand that. If I could distill that dream down to two ideas, it would be these. Bill wanted a place where people who were far from God could be reconciled with God through the truth of Jesus. He was tired of churches that didn't actively welcome people who had questions or doubts or who just wanted to explore Christianity a bit. And he dreamed of a church where anybody could come and feel at home and feel embraced and have the freedom to learn. What I wanted was a church that wasn't afraid to deal with the messy stuff of life, with the brokenness of life. I was a social work major who grew up in a church that never, ever talked about poverty or racism or the breakdown of inner-city neighborhoods or injustice, really, of any kind. And that just didn't make sense to me. 
Based on my reading of the scripture, it seemed to me that church ought to be filled with the most compassionate people on earth who are committed to fixing whatever is broken in God's world. Now, neither Bill nor I were particularly intelligent or um, educated or theologically wise. We had never heard terms like holistic ministry or integral mission. We had never talked about proclamation and demonstration. Um, But I think God knew what he was doing when he brought the two of us together and brought the two parts of that dream together. I think that ended up being a pretty good dream for a church because it addressed the spiritual brokenness of people as well as the brokenness of the social, relational, and material world that we live in. Now, of course, it's a lot easier to talk about a dream than it is to birth it and to grow it up. And in many ways, the willow dream is still just that. It is just a dream. But we have learned some important lessons along the way, and I just want to begin tonight by sharing some of those. In 1975, when we started Willow, we prayed that God would bring us people, and he did. But it didn't take us long to realize that these people had a lot of problems. We forgot to pray for healthy people, you know? So we got lots of people, and there were marriages that were falling apart. There were parents who didn't know how to raise their children, and they were feeling desperate and and overwhelmed as parents. There are people who were sick, some uh, struggling with terminal illnesses, and they didn't know what to do with that. There were people who were grieving the loss of loved ones, and nobody was really helping them to grieve. There were people who were going through divorces, and they were confused and lonely. There were all kinds of addictions. There were people losing their jobs. There were some people who didn't know how to budget, and so they were going bankrupt. And Bill and I were 23. Um... (laughs) We were absolutely overwhelmed. And we so, so we said, God, help us. How do we care for these people that you have so graciously brought through our door? Obviously, it's not enough to say, you know, just accept Jesus and everything will be fine. That wasn't working. These people needed counsel. They needed guidance. They needed mentors. They needed people to listen to them and pray for them. They needed to be taught new skills In many cases, it appeared to us that they needed to be reparented. They needed the compassion of God mediated to them through loving people in a loving community. And out of that realization grew what came to be known as the community care ministries, which included weekly workshops and support groups that helped people deal with the brokenness in their lives. And for me, it was very moving to see people loved and served and meeting God during the most vulnerable times in their lives. John Perkins says, The church lives out its call most fully when it is a community of faith with arms wrapped about a community of pain. And we discovered that that really is true. I love it today when I meet people at Willow Creek who came many years ago when they had no affiliation with Willow or any other church, but a friend or a counselor or maybe someone in the local hospital referred them to community care ministries for a grief support group or for a divorce recovery workshop or an addiction support group. And through that experience, they were drawn into a relationship with a God who loved them. And now they have become someone who can share that love with other people. 
And to us, to Bill and I, that was a little bit of the dream of the church coming true. Well, that dream grew again in the early 80s when a group of people at Willow said, well, okay, you know, it's really great that we're responding to the needs of people who are coming through our doors. But what about the people who are never going to come through our doors? But they're really in need in poor suburban neighborhoods or in the streets of Chicago. What about them? That question led to what was eventually uh, known as Extension Ministries, um, in which we began to partner with churches and uh, local NGOs and different organizations that were directly touching the lives of people who were homeless or who were refugees or prisoners or prostitutes or unwed mothers or at-risk teens. And we were partnering with these groups because they had the expertise and they had the proximity, the presence in those neighborhoods to be really touching those people up, up personally. And so we would partner with them either by, you know, providing funds for some of their programs or volunteers to help them on a, some people on a weekly basis or on a monthly basis. We had volunteers from Extension Ministries helping to rehab apartment buildings in Chicago and uh, many building houses for Habitat for Humanity. We had many groups going down to serve uh, in uh, construction in Katrina, and many of those people are still going down there to serve. But we found that there were many, many areas of service that we could not, um, we could not start a new ministry from the church to touch these people, but there were other people, other organizations in our communities that were doing that, and so we could begin to partner with them and support the ministry that they had. One of the ministries that I, I, I love to hear about right now is called Safe, uh, Safe Place for Families, and this is a ministry in Chicago that takes families from the church community and pairs them with a family in need in the community. And in this family of need, for some reason, the parents are not able to care for their kids for a period of time. Maybe uh, they're suffering from an illness and they need an extended uh, stay in the hospital, or many of the, the parents are in drug rehabilitation programs or something, but for whatever reason, they can't care for their children. And if they don't want the children to end up in the, you know, in Chicago, it would be the Department of Family and Child Services, you know. That's not necessary, but there needs to be some kind of intervention. So the churches from the family, uh, the families from the church, take the children into their homes, build a relationship with the parents, help them get on their feet again, and then the children can go back to their home. And I just think this is, this is the church. Um, this is what it means to open our hearts and our homes to people who are really in need. And so I just love seeing the many creative ways that um, individuals in, in congregations can live out their passion and their, their calling before God. Well, in the late 80s and the early 90s, the dream that we had grew again when Willow began to partner with churches in Latin America that were located in extremely poor communities. And these were churches that were living out God's dream by literally turning their communities upside down by bringing about long-term sustainable transformation. And I want to tell you about one of these churches, one of these pastors in Latin America, because this uh, particular ministry had such an impact on me. Um, the pastor's name is Roy Soto, and he lives in Costa Rica in a little uh, mountainous agricultural community called Frajanes. And uh, in 1993... 
Roy moved to that little village, and as an evangelical Christian, he started having a little Bible study in his home. Now, it was a nominal Catholic community, and the resistance to this evangelical moving into the community was so strong that there were, at, there were actually open threats and persecution, you know, uh, for Ray and his little growing house church. So Roy and his tiny congregation decided that they would just start serving the town. One of the most antagonistic men in the town was a local pig farmer. So Roy visited the man, introduced himself, and said, is there any way that I can serve you? The man said, sure, you can clean out my pig trough. Well, I'm sure he thought he would never see Roy again, but Roy started coming every week and cleaning out the pig trough. And every act of service that Roy and his people offered to the town drew more people into their fellowship and enabled them to serve even more people. When a storm washed out a land bridge that provided many of the people in the town with their only route to work, the church rebuilt the bridge. When church members saw poor working women standing out in the pouring rain waiting for a bus, they built a bus shelter. When they saw little kids walking along the side of a dangerous road, they dug a sidewalk where the kids could walk to school safely. And while they served, they won the hearts of the very people who had been the most antagonistic. The pig pig farmer eventually sold them a piece of land at a very reduced rate where they could build a church building and begin to expand their services there. Eventually, they also built a community center where they could offer job training and computer skills and accounting and tailoring. They taught reading and writing and English, English classes. Currently, they're working on plans to build a library and a playground and a cafeteria because those things just don't exist in that community. And so they want to serve that community that way. In order to provide a source of income for local farmers who have lost their jobs um, in agriculture to younger farmers who are stronger and can work harder, uh, Roy's church, uh, named Shalom, has started an organic farming project. And they started five greenhouses where they grow uh, quality organic vegetables that they've been able to sell at the market. And just recently, an international produce company approached them and said they would like to order 200 heads of lettuce and 100 stalks of celery every week. So that organic farming program is going to not only provide uh, income for these many uh, older people in the community, but it's also going to help to fund some of the outreach um, ministries of the church. Roy and his church have also been as creative in an evangelistic outreach as they have been in their social programs. Currently, in this little village of about 1,000 people, 700 of them now attend Shalom. And they are becoming as committed and as uh, devoted in their love to God and to other people as Roy and his little house church were in 1993. Now, we have been partnering uh, with Roy and, and Shalom for about 10 years. And over those 10 years, we've been able to fund some of their expansion efforts. And we've had a lot of volunteer teams that have gone down there to serve in a variety of ways. But what I want you to know about Shalom and our partnership with them is while we have been able to contribute to their ministry, and I think that's been important, what we as a congregation have learned from this Latin American church and many others like them has changed the way we do ministry. 
Looking at Roy and the way he loves his community has changed the way that we uh, minister in our neighborhood in South Barrington, Illinois. And I think, you know, we often talk about partnerships between the the west and the east and the north and the south and we tend to think that we need to partner because we have so much to give and I think many of us have been blessed and we do have something that we need to give but there is so much that we need to learn and gain and and we need to be transformed by our global partners and and Roy Soto and the Shalom Church in Frajanes, uh, Costa Rica really began my education uh, in what it means to be a, a really passionate, uh, devoted church. And I'm very thankful for them. If you have been listening to the news, you know that in Costa Rica, about a month ago, there was a very severe earthquake. And it just happened that the epicenter of that uh, earthquake was Frajanes. And Roy Soto's church is right in the middle of that. And uh, when many of the homes were destroyed in the community, the little church building was left standing, and so within you know, 24 hours, there were 200 refugees living in the church building. And um, that church and the community of believers there has become the hub of um, help and, and restoration in that whole community. And not long ago, I got a report from Roy, and he said that the, um, when the government uh, agencies and the disaster relief organizations went down there, they saw the work of Shalom, and so they named the church building, their, their kind of name for it, is now the Shelter of Peace, because that's what they see happening through that ministry. And so um, I am very thankful for what we've been able to learn and, and um, gain and the way we've been transformed by our global partners. Several years ago, I was telling a friend of mine about some of the things that I just described to you and telling her how much I love these ministries of the church. And she said, oh, Isaiah 58 is your passage. And I'm so embarrassed to say that I said, well, what's Isaiah 58? And she said, well, you read Isaiah 58 for 30 days in a row, and you will know why God put you on this planet. And so I did that, and she was right. In Isaiah 58, the Hebrews are apparently grumbling about how they're following all the rules and rituals about fasting and worshiping, and yet God doesn't seem to be responding and blessing them the way they think he should be. And they're going on and on about that, and then God says to them, wait a minute, stop right here. You think I like the fasting, the worship that you're bringing me when you're just saying words and pretending to be righteous? But behind the scenes, you're exploiting workers, and you're quarreling, and you're fighting. I hate this. How can you call yourselves worshipers of me when you behave like this? The kind of worship I want is for you to loose the chains of injustice, and to set the oppressed free, and to share your, hung your food with the hungry, and provide the poor with shelter, and to clothe the naked. And if you do that, I will guide you. And I will satisfy your needs, and you'll find joy in me. And I will make your life and your community and your church a light that shines brightly. My glory will follow you, and I will make you to be a blessing to the world. But only if you give me the kind of worship that I want, which is for you to fight for justice for all my people. We're reading that passage for 30 days. It had a profound impact on me. And just on another deeper, deeper level, it renewed my commitment to the fight for 
justice and to engagement um, on the global uh, arena. And so at that time, I thought, you know, I've been sort of involved in our ministries in Latin America, but I want to get more involved. I want to be able to communicate with our partners more um, intimately. And so I started studying Spanish. Whenever I was in the car, I had this little Spanish CD, and I'd be, you know, talking with my Spanish CD in the car. And I was, you know, at that time, Bill was traveling a lot. My kids were both out of the home. I thought, this is the time I, I will study Spanish, and I will spend a lot of time in Latin America. And then all I can say is that, very unexpectedly, I was ambushed by Africa. Through uh, certain conversations and encounters and opportunities, I just felt compelled to learn more about Africa. And when an opportunity came to visit Uganda and Kenya and Zambia, I knew I had to go. And just so happened that both of my 20-something kids at that time were um, in between jobs. And so I said, okay, Todd and Shauna, you're going with me. Uh, we're going to Africa. And it was a long, intense, and very heartbreaking trip. We walked through hospitals filled with men and women in filthy beds, dying alone. We sat in tiny huts and prayed with young mothers who knew they had just weeks to live, and they asked the question that haunts so many mothers in Africa, what's going to become of my kids? We met a beautiful young widow who had sold herself into prostitution because in a town with 98% unemployment, there was no other way for her to feed her children. There was one particular moment on that trip that pushed me so far into despair that I knew I had to choose right then whether I would give in to hopelessness or become a person of positive action. We were in a small village in Uganda. We were supposed to visit a family that had received sponsorship through the organization that we were traveling with. However, there was a mix-up in communication, and our African guide instead took us to a family that needed help, but they had not received it. In this family, there were eight orphans. In this one family, there were all cousins whose parents had died of AIDS, and so they were being cared for by their very elderly and frail grandfather. And he had no job, uh, no means of support. He, he was a very uh, weak and frail man, I'm, I'm sure very loving, but could not support for these kids, could not provide for the kids. So it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, the children had not yet eaten that day, and they had no meal awaiting them. Because we had not anticipated being there, we had no food to give them. We had dollar bills in our pocket, but that did no good in that little village. And that was probably one of the most disturbing experiences in my life. In that moment, I hated who I was. A privileged American seeing the need and doing nothing. Of course, that wasn't my intention. My heart was filled with good intentions on that trip. But those good intentions did nothing to change the reality. To those children, I was just one more person seeing their need and turning my back on them. And I cried a lot on that trip, but that day, standing in that field looking at those kids, I just sobbed uncontrollably. And I vowed that when I got back home, I would do something about that. Now, for nearly 30 years in ministry prior to that, I had managed to maintain a fairly non-public role I did not enjoy being an upfront person, and I appreciated the opportunity that, that you have in a large church to kind of choose how you want to engage. And I was not forced into any kind of role that I, I didn't want. But after that trip, I began speaking up wherever I could, sharing what I had seen. 
And then I began meeting with a group of volunteers from Willow who were interested in Africa. We spent a year reading and studying and researching. We met with leaders of a variety of NGOs and asked every question that we could think of. And then we went to Africa and, and we visited churches and talked with pastors and just really tried to, to understand the problem, but also potential solutions. And we discovered the same thing that we had discovered in Latin America, that in Africa, there were heroic pastors and church leaders who were, who were caring for orphans and widows and were taking care of the sick. I mean, they were just doing amazing things. But in too many cases, it was the poor caring for the desperately poor, and it was the sick caring for the dying. And so we thought, what better thing can we do than just walk beside these heroes who um, are already committed to doing the very best that they can, but with some encouragement and help and support, they could do more. And I can tell you with all sincerity that nothing has challenged me, inspired me, or called me to greater faithfulness than the example of our African partners. And I just want to tell you about three of the pastors uh, that I've met in Africa. Trevor Downham is a white South African pastor who lives near Durban, and for many years, Trevor's church, which is called the Norwegian Settlers Church, did the normal things that churches do. And then someone challenged Trevor with this question. If your church disappeared tomorrow, would anybody notice? Would it make any difference in your community? And that question forced Trevor to face the irrelevance of his ministry outside the four walls of his nice, tidy, neat little church building. And it forced him to take a long look at the reality surrounding him in his community. The reality there was that the local hospital was so overwhelmed with AIDS patients and so short on beds that when patients were clearly near death, the hospital would literally throw them out on the street to die, essentially creating a human garbage dump. Well, Trevor happened to have several medical people in his church, so they started a, hospi a hospice. And they literally picked people up off the streets and brought them into the hospice where they could be lovely, lovingly cared for until they died. And in the beginning, usually the people would be there for about um, an average of three weeks, and then they would die. But at least they were treated with love and dignity and really embraced with the love of God during that time. Well, eventually, the work of the hospice really became uh, well-known in the community, and they began to partner officially with the local hospi hospital. And so when people uh, reached a point where the hosp hospital could no longer help them, they would bring them to the hospice. And eventually, the work of the hospice became so successful that many of the people were not dying with tender, loving care and good nutrition. They got healthy enough to go on ARV medications, and then some of them actually got healthy enough to go back into their homes and care for their children. And now the local municipality is so grateful for the work that Trevor and the hospice do that they actually financed a, a building addition for them so that they could start a ward for children, and the municipality has now assumed a portion of the operating costs. So Trevor's church, went from one that had virtually no impact in the community to being a leader in the development and the transformation of that community. 
Another pastor that I've gotten to know is John Maloma, who was a black South African businessman. Despite growing up under apartheid, John managed to get a university education and ended up with a very successful career. But he also volunteered as a mentor for young people. And in that work, he saw spiritual emptiness and he saw the horrific impact of HIV AIDS, which was so complicated by the stigma and the discrimination and the denial surrounding it. I mean, he saw that as really big, being the biggest problem in addressing the AIDS pandemic. Eventually, John decided to become a pastor because he wanted to start a church that would really welcome in these young people that he had been, you know, volunteering with, and also because he wanted to start a safe place for people to come who were HIV positive. So John and his wife poured all of the money that they had earned in their, in their careers into renting a little storefront building. But then shortly before the church was set to open, John discovered that his very beloved sister had AIDS, and she was really sick. And so at that point, John had a decision to make. Would he commit himself to image management, as many pastors in South Africa would have done at that time, and uh, ignore or hide the fact that AIDS had actually touched his family? Or would he take really seriously his commitment to create a safe place for people who had HIV or AIDS, including his sister and his family. Well, he chose the second path, and though his sister died, she was surrounded by a loving community of support until the very day that she died. And John says now in retrospect that, yes, my sister died, but she really lived right up until she died because of the people that surrounded her. John's church is called the Seeker's Tower, and it is committed to helping people find out their HIV status so that they can get the support and the medication that they need. They have a voluntary testing and counseling center right in the church building, as well as a mobile testing center, which they take into local businesses and factories so that people who wouldn't bother, go to, bother to go to a clinic can get tested had the testing come right to him. And the church is now working with local government, businesses, and medical leaders who welcome the ministry of this little church. Now, I was at John's church the Sunday that they had a grand opening for their medical clinic in the church. And the health administrator for the community was there, and there were very, various government officials there, and there was a young girl who was HIV positive there telling about the support and help she had received from the church. And I sat there thinking about all the smart people sitting in well-appointed conference rooms in affluent countries talking about someday doing something about AIDS, but then getting overwhelmed by the complexity and paralyzed by the options and wondering who might criticize them for doing this or for not doing that or for how much it might cost if they really did get involved. But here was this little church and this brave pastor just being so gutsy and putting everything out there on the line, money, reputation, time, and energy, and just being the church, being the church in that community. I just want to tell you one more Africa story. In a rural, in a rural village in Zambia called Samphia, 22 churches put aside their denominational differences in order to work together to care for the orphans in their community. 
There are about 18,000 people living in this region, and most of them, them were dependent on fishing for their livelihood. But the local lake had been uh, overfished for a long time and had ceased to um, be able to provide them for their living. And because the village was so remote and rural, neither government uh, help or funding from large NGOs or you know, foreign aid, none of that ever reached Samphia. So the poverty was extreme. And then when AIDS hit and adults started dying, the community was overwhelmed with orphans. So in response to this crisis, families from these 22 churches got together and took in a 1,000 orphans. The problem was that these families didn't have enough money to care for their own kids, let alone take in these extra children, but they believed that God was calling them to do what they could. So we heard about um, this, this village and this ministry, and we went to visit there and met the leaders, uh, the local leaders of this uh, group of, of churches, and we were so impressed with their compa- compassion, but also with their wisdom, with their um, organization, with the way they were following up with these children and making sure that they were getting cared for. And, I mean, they had a list of all the children's names and the guardian family names. I mean, they, they didn't have electricity. They, I mean, there was so much they didn't have but they were doing an extraordinary job. And so we began to partner with them. And the first thing that we we did, because this is what they asked for, they said, these families just need extra food. They're getting to the end of their month and they don't have enough enough food. So we provided a a monthly supplement of something called mealy meal. It was sort of a maize, you know, their basic food uh, substance in the region. And so we provided that every month for these families that had taken in the children. And then the um, community leaders came and said to us, well, you know, it's good to provide, you know, the the monthly mealy meal, but what these people really need is to move towards sustainability. I mean, we can't just go go on giving them bags of food forever. So could you help us with training and funding for community gardens? And then that so many of these families, you know, no longer need the mealy meal substance. Uh, they have their own gardens that they're feeding their family good fruits and vegetables, and they're selling produce at the market. So there's, there's great, you know, sustainable development going on. And then the leader said, well, you know, um, the kids in the high school, they really don't have school books. So um, to, I could really go on talking about this uh, story all evening. I will save some of that for the workshop tomorrow. But what's been great about uh, for us as a church is that we've been able to get our whole church involved in this Samphia community. Our little children in promised land raised money to buy goats for the village. And our junior high students raised money to buy bicycles for the home-based care workers so that they could, um, instead of walking, they could ride bikes and, and help more families. And our high school kids raised money for the textbooks and actually went to Samphia and met with high school kids there. And so everybody in our church knows about Samphia. And we need to know about Samphia, because we need to be changed by Samphia. I think we can all agree that many Americans, including many evangelical Americans, have a rather debilitating disease. It's the disease of materialism, the addiction to more, and it undermines our spirits, it drains meaning from our lives, and allows us to live in a bubble of unreality 
disconnected from the big picture of life on this planet and disconnected from what God is really trying to do. And I, I sincerely believe that the only way out of this disease and this addiction is to become active participants in the global community, to enter the global kingdom of God, to be humbled by pastors like Trevor Downham and John Maloma, and to have our hearts gripped by the children and the leaders in Samphia. How else will we ever really get it that every widow, every orphan, every person who is hungry or lonely or sick, no matter how or why they got that way, they are children of God. They are part of our family, and we can't ignore their needs. I want to end this talk with just one more story. It's not about Africa, but it's a story that I go back to over and over again when I just need to be reminded that we are, in fact, part of a global community. And, and we, we need to be caring members of this global family. In the early uh, to mid-90s, as, as you all know, I'm sure, there was a horrible war taking place in Eastern Europe as the former Yugoslavia divided into separate countries. And it was a horribly vicious war, complete with ethnic cleansing and mass murders and mass graves and rape and atrocious crimes against humanity. Soldiers would come into a village and rape the women and take all of the men and boys over age 13, and most of them never came back. Well, twice during that war, I traveled with a humanitarian organization to Croatia and to Bosnia. We visited refugee centers filled with middle-class women who were just like me, who had lost everything. Uh, they had lost their jobs, their husbands, their homes, the future that they had planned, they lost everything. We visited schools where social workers tried to help kids who had watched their parents die when shells landed right in their houses. And these kids were suffering so severely from post-traumatic syndrome that at school they would just sit there all day and just bite their fingernails. It was like they were just um, closed up in their own little world and the only thing they control was, control was their own little body. And it was the first time that I had seen war up close, and I was stunned by what human beings do to one another. The day before I left to come home, I just went off by myself, and I climbed to the top of the hill where there was a little park that overlooked the countryside of Bosnia. And I sat there for hours, and I wept, and I prayed for the women and the children that I had seen. And while I prayed, and unbidden, question repeated itself in my mind. Am I my sister's keeper? Am I my sister's keeper? And the repeated answer was yes, 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 you are your sister's keeper. And so I said, God, who is my sister? Tell me, who is my sister? And, and I sense God saying so clearly to me, they are all your sisters. The Croatian Catholics, the Bosnian Muslims, the Serbian Orthodox, they and every other woman you will ever meet, they are all your sisters. And every man you will ever meet, they are your brothers. They are all part of the human family that I have created. Whether they know that or not, they are. They are part of my family. And I just tell you that that's what happens when you open your mind and your heart to God 
and to his world. You end up with a huge family. And you realize that every single member of the family is as important to God as you are. You can't possibly meet the need of every family member, but you can never again dismiss their needs thoughtlessly. They're family. And that changes the way I listen to the news. It changes the way I think about war and global poverty and AIDS and everything that's happening in our world. Distance doesn't matter. Race doesn't matter. Religion doesn't matter. If there's tragedy in the world, it's touching my family. And I have to pay attention to it. I have to care. And there's a very simple prayer that I have to pray over and over again. It's this prayer. God, what is mine to do? What is mine to do? Sometimes I need to pray that prayer because I need to hear God say, you know, I know you really care about this issue, but this is not yours to do. I have someone else that I'm going to call to to respond to that. But also, sometimes I have to pray that prayer because I need to hear God say, yes, that is yours to do. And maybe this is hard for you. Maybe this isn't what you expected. Maybe this is a stretch. But this is yours to do. And then I have to respond and say, okay, God, here I am. Show me what I am to do. And I will obey you. And, and I will do that. There is a quote that I have um, taped up on the lamp on my desk at home. And it says this. I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And I will not let what I cannot do interfere with what I can do. And I look at that quote every day because I need to be reminded not to give up, not to quit fighting just because I'm just one person. Because if I keep fighting, and if you keep fighting, and if a whole lot of other people keep fighting, we can make a powerful army for God and for good and for justice in this world. And I truly believe that that is God's dream for his church.